You'll open your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. We have come to the second core doctrine of our series, We Believe. Uh, we spent the last two weeks looking at what we believe about the Bible as the Word of God. We talked about the value and importance of understanding what it means that it's the inspired Word of God, that God is its author. We talked about its purpose, its profitability, its power, and, and we looked at how important it is for us to believe and understand and know that it is truth without any mixture of error. Well, today we're going to move on and we're going to look at the first basic theological topic, okay? And, and of course, the, the Word of God is foundational because all of our beliefs, all of our doctrines come from the Bible. But what is that kind of core basic doctrine? Well, you've already heard it. We've sung about it. Ben's talked about it. It is the doctrine of God. And, and, and if you remember from a few weeks ago, theology, the word theology literally means words about God. So what kind of words do we use to talk about God? What do we believe about God? And what difference does it make? I think if I were to ask everyone in here, do you believe in God? I think we'd probably all raise our hands. We'd all say, of course, I believe in God. But then if I were to ask you to describe God to me, if I were to ask you what is God like, what are His attributes, what is, what is the essence of His nature and His character, how would you answer? That's a maybe a little bit harder question. See, most people, especially in the United States, most people claim to believe in God or some form of higher power, but they may not be sure who He is, what He's like, how we can know for certain the truth about who He is. In fact, in 2018, Pew Research did a study and they asked Americans, do you believe in God? And I was kind of surprised that it was this high, but 80% of people interviewed said, yes, they believe in God, but then came the follow-up questions. And based on the answers to those follow-up questions, only 56% of that 80 believe in the God of the Bible, a God who is omnipotent and omniscient and benevolent and actively involved in human affairs. So the purpose of the message this morning is for us to take a closer look at the person and nature of the God of the Bible. A.W. Tozer famously said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, why might that be? Why do our beliefs in God matter so much? Well, he goes on to say, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. So what you or I believe about God is of utmost importance to how we live our lives, to how we, our worldview and the rest of our belief system is shaped, starts with our beliefs about God and what our church believes about God. The things we say or maybe fail to say about God speaks volumes about us. Now, any one of these doctrines that we are going to be covering in the coming months are vast. They're deep, they're complex, huge volumes have been written on every single one of these. So, it's kind of impossible to cover it all in a 35 or 40 minute sermon. And so, these messages aren't meant to be exhaustive or comprehensive in the least little bit. My goal is to kind of familiarize ourselves with the basic truths of these doctrines, these 
beliefs that we as Southern Baptists confess to be vital and to be true. And so I hope these sermons really to sort of whet your appetite and pique your interest and drive you to further prayer and study in each of these doctrines. But let's begin by looking at what the Baptist faith and message says about God. It says this, and this is a, will be on the screen, it's also on the back of your order of worship. There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and His perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of His free creatures. To Him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. So the core truth I want us to grasp today is there kind of towards the beginning of this statement, and that is the God of the Bible is the only one living and true God. And we can know what, God, what this God is like, and we can experience His activity in the world. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6 really captures the essence of that. God is speaking. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me, so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. And, and just to make sure we are getting what he's saying, he repeats himself, I am the Lord and there is no other. Now, we know that there are other gods, false gods, idols. There are false views about God. People worship and revere these gods. The Bible talks about false gods, the, the gods of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, the, the idols that they made and worship. Israel itself struggled often with worshiping false gods like Baal or idols they made like the golden calf. Now, the people around us may not be worshiping a divine bovine, but there are false gods out there and false views of gods that, that we need to understand and expose because they are not the same as the God of the Bible. And I think this is important to mention briefly here because too many well-meaning Christians have bought into the, the feel-good lie that says, hey, we all worship the same God. He's the same God, just different names. All roads eventually lead to heaven. Those are simply not true. For example, the God of the Bible is not Allah worshipped by the Muslims because Allah is neither Trinity. They reject the idea of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not a God of mercy and grace. He demands strict obedience. There's no repentance. There's no salvation by grace through faith. Salvation isn't a gift. Salvation is something you earn. So the God of the Bible is not the God of the Muslims. Nor is He the God of the Mormons. The Mormons believe that as we are now, God once was, and as God is, we shall become. They believe that God was a man who earned His way to becoming God as we can. They also reject the Trinity. Nor is He the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny the divinity of Christ. They deny the Holy Spirit. 
And the doctrine of the Trinity, again, is heresy to them. He's not the God of the New Age or Eastern religions who believe that God is some higher force. It's just some cosmic power. They reject the idea of a personable, knowing, knowable God who is active in the course of human events. And I could go on, but I think you get the point. Though many people believe in a God, they may not necessarily believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God revealed to us in Scripture. So let's dive in and look at what this God is like first. What is God like? What are His attributes? And again, this is not in any way comprehensive or exhaustive, but let's use this passage in 1 Chronicles 29 to guide us this morning. And I want you to keep this open because these attributes we talked about can all be found in these few verses. So David is praying. It says, David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. David said, may you be blessed, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. And you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you. And you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand. And it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. The first thing we see from this and really from all of Scripture, it's one of the most basic attributes of God, and that is He is personal. He is a personal God. He's not some nondescript force or blob of energy out there. He's more than just the first cause that started creation. He's more than just the moral center of reality. He is a person, meaning He has personality. And what does that mean? Well, it means, for one thing, God is intelligent. He is a God who has a mind. He thinks. He knows. He has and acts by His will. In fact, God is the greatest intelligence in the universe because all of the universe sprang from His mind. From the elephant to the ladybug, from the great spiraling Milky Way galaxy to your DNA, it all came from His mind. It's His idea. His intelligence. His knowledge are not like ours. Now, we have intelligence. And we can know because He is intelligent. We are made in His image. But His intelligence, His knowledge is infinitely more than we could ever imagine. In fact, Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah 55. The Lord is speaking and He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's an intelligent God. Secondly, to have personality, He is a spiritual God. Jesus tells us in John 4, 24 that God is spirit. And those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. God exists in a reality, a a dimension, a state of being, whatever you want to call it. He exists outside of the created physical world. Before time and space existed, God existed. And He is holy, other holy, W-H-O-L-O-I, wholly other than anyone or anything we could ever know. Kind of the, the big theological word for that is transcendent. He's a transcendent God. He stands alone as the spiritual, eternal God. And that means that God, and this is an important distinction, God is not His creation. 
God is not contained in His creation as pagans believe. God is separate and distinct from what He has created. Now, we are God's creation, aren't we? We are part of the natural, physical world, but we're also spiritual. And, and, and like the fact that we're intelligent because God is intelligent, we're spiritual because God is spiritual, because we're made in His image. And we're spiritual because God has breathed His Spirit into us. Remember when God made Adam, He formed Adam from the dust of the ground. He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. The Hebrew word for breath is ruach. It means breath, wind, and spirit. We have spirit because God has given us spirit. He's made us in His likeness. And because God is spiritual and has made us physical and spiritual, we also know that God is relational. He created us to have a relationship with Him. Nothing sums this up better than 1 John 4, 8, which simply says God is love. Now, love by its nature is relational, isn't it? There must be one who loves and one who receives that love. There's a reciprocity here. And we'll talk about this more in a moment and especially next week, but God is Trinity, meaning He exists as one Godhead consisting of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, an eternal relationship of mutual love and submission. So God is immensely personal. It's the core of His being as a Trinitarian God of love. That's what it means for God to be personal. But secondly, God is also sovereign. God's sovereignty, that refers to His all-encompassing rule over the universe. Because He made the universe, He gets to call the shots. He gets to say how things are going to be. And He doesn't need to seek anyone else's permission. He doesn't need any advisors. He is the ultimate authority. Again, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 28 says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is sovereign. Again, I want to unpack this word a little bit. For God to be sovereign, first of all, means that He is self-existent. Remember, the first words in the Bible are, in the beginning, God. God existed before anything else Existed. He's the only uncreated being. God's covenant name, the name He revealed to Moses at the burning bush, we usually pronounce that name Yahweh, and it means literally I am who I am, or I am that I am. God's name means I am. He's the God who is. He exists in and of Himself. He needs and answers to no one. And that means that God is also self-sufficient. I mean, if he wasn't created by anyone or anything, he simply is, then he depends on no one and nothing for his existence. He is complete in himself. He lacks nothing. Guess what? He doesn't need you and me. He can run the universe just fine without us. Paul writes about this in, first, in Colossians chapter 1. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him All things hold together because God is self-existent and He is self-sufficient. He can create and sustain all things. He literally holds reality together. He's a pretty powerful God. Acts 17.25 says, 
He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. We can depend on God because he doesn't depend on us. He wouldn't be much of a God if he depended on me, I'll tell you that. Because God has no beginning. He is complete in Himself. He needs nothing. That means He has no end. That means that our God is eternal. Look back here at, at, at 1 Chronicles 29.10. David said, May you be blessed, Lord God of our Father Israel, from eternity to eternity. There was never a time when God was not, and there will never be a time when God is not. Again, God's name means I am, not I was, not I will be, I am. And we heard in our New Testament reading in Romans chapter 1, Paul talked about God's invisible attributes. That is, specifically, His eternal power. Now that leads us into the next attribute of God's nature and character. God is personal, God is sovereign, and He is glorious. We've used that word a lot in our songs this morning. He's glorious. Though God doesn't need us, He doesn't need creation, He is separate and distinct from us and His creation, yet God has chosen to glorify Himself through us, through what He has made. Now, what is glory? What does that word mean? What does it mean for for God to be glorious or or for us to glorify God? Well, the glory of God is simply the splendor and brilliant beauty that shines, that radiates through all of His divine attributes. We use words like here in, in 1 Chronicles 29.10. We use anal- uh, similar words and, and, and synonyms like greatness, power, glory, splendor, majesty. Those are some of the words we use to mean glory. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod. And it means weighty, heavy, abundant, full. Now think about this. When someone or something is glorious, it leaves us speechless, doesn't it? It's it's, it's weighty. It's it's heavy. Words can't fully capture it. It's sort of like this summer we got to go to the Grand Canyon. My family and I went to the Grand Canyon and Abby and Julia had never seen it. And so I turned the camera. As we walked up to the rim, I turned the camera on them. I wanted to catch their face when they looked out and saw that for the first time. And that picture is priceless. Because when you see the Grand Canyon, its vastness, its immensity, it overwhelms you. Pictures do not do it justice. You have to experience it in person. It is glorious. It's mind-blowing. It's unexplainable but incredibly real. Or husbands, think about that moment you looked down that aisle and you saw your bride in that white dress when those doors opened. Was she not glorious? Was she not glorious? I'm I'm trying to give you guys an easy win here, okay? She was radiant, wasn't she? Majestic, beautiful. Took your breath away. Maybe you even cried. Maybe your knees got weak. Or parents, think about that first time you held your child. That's an awe-inspiring moment, isn't it? A joyous moment, a heavy moment. Moment You feel the weight in that moment that your life will never be the same again. Now take all of those and multiply them by a bajillion times and you're beginning to get to the glory of God. In fact, the Bible talks about the earth being full of His glory. Look back again at 1 Chronicles 29. 
It says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belong to You. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and You are exalted as head over all. Power and might are in Your hand. And so He ends with, We give You thanks and we praise Your glorious name. God's glory is awesome. It is fear-inducing in a good kind of way, a good kind of fear. If you remember Isaiah, when he found himself in the glorious presence of God, he said, woe is me, I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Think about the Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was revealed to them in all of His glory. It says that they trembled in fear, and Peter just kind of started talking out of his head. He didn't even know what he was saying. He was overwhelmed by the glory. But one of the best examples of God's glory is found in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses, on Mount Sinai, wants to see the glory of God. He asks the Lord to show him his kavod, his glory. And God said, Moses, you can't bear it. No man can see my glory and live. You know, I have to imagine it'd be like, you know, those poor people in Tonga when that volcano erupted the other weekend and the the, the power and the magnitude of that explosion... Or if you look at the sun, just stare straight into the sun without any blocking your eyes. It'll leave you blind or or a nuclear blast. That's what it would be like to be fully exposed to the glory of God. So God put Moses in a cave and he covered it with his hand and he said, I'm going to pass by. And after I pass by, you can see my backside. In other words, he's saying you can see where my glory just was. The shadow of it, the afterglow of my glory. And just that little bit of exposure to where God's glory had just been was enough to make Moses' face glow when he came down the mountain. He literally became like a glow-in-the-dark, you know, like a glowworm, I guess. You know, he just, he walked out and he just glowed, radiated. That little bit of exposure was enough to irradiate Moses with the glory of God. But the best part, the most profound part, is found in Exodus 34, 5 through 8. As God passes by, as His glory is revealed, listen to what God says. It says, The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with Him there, and proclaimed His name, Yahweh, I Am. And the Lord passed in front of Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but He will not leave the guilty Unpunished. So, you know, when we think of the glory of God, we think of like a volcanic eruption. We think of like, you know, a, a thunderstorm, the waves of the ocean. We think in these great big terms. It's like Elijah. Remember the story? Elijah was on the mountain and, and, and there was a fire. It says, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. There was a, a storm, but the Lord wasn't in the storm. But then there was a still, small voice, a whisper. And that's where God was. God, when He passed by in His glory, He could have said to Moses anything. I'm the God that created the universe. I'm the God that breathes out stars. I'm the God that can make the mountains quake. But no. He said, I'm the God that's compassionate. I'm the God that's forgiving. I'm the God that loves. I'm the God of righteousness and justice. That was the essence of God's glory. And God's glory doesn't change. God's glory doesn't fade. Because not only is God personal and sovereign, not only is God glorious, but God is also immutable. Now that's a fancy word that simply means God doesn't change. 
It's like the hymn we sang earlier, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The first verse says, There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever wilt be. Or Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Throughout the Bible we're assured that God doesn't change His mind like we do. He's not fickle. He doesn't learn something new and change you know, what He thinks or the way He acts. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That means that God will always come through on His promises. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is trustworthy and dependable. And His grace, His mercy, and His blessings are irrevocable. I love how Lamentations 3.22 puts it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. God is immutable and God is holy. Now the Baptist Faith and Message Study Committee wrote this. Holiness is the quintessential attribute of God's moral character and it defines all other Attributes. In other words, we can describe everything else about God as being holy. His power is a holy power. His omniscience is a holy knowledge. His will is holy. His righteousness is holy. You, you get the picture. God is holy. Now, holiness is another one of those words that we sometimes have a hard time grasping. Simply put, to be holy means to be separate, distinct, in a category of its own. God is holy. The holy other one. He is separate and distinct from everything else. There is no one like Him. He stands alone. And part of the meaning of that too is that God is perfectly and completely God. He is what He is with no mixture of anything that isn't Him. There's no mixture of wickedness or evil or or anything within God. There's nothing within Him that goes against His character. No contradiction. 1 John 1.5 gave this analogy. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Darkness can't exist in light. Light literally eradicates darkness. You can't have like a little blob of darkness in a beam of light. right? It, it, light is light. There is no darkness in it. Or here's another example. So I've got a bottle of water here. Now, if this water bottle said, you know, it says purified water. Maybe you've seen them that say, you know, 100% spring water. Or maybe a bottle of orange juice. 100% Pure Florida orange juice, whatever. That means that in this bottle of water, it should be nothing but water, right? If there's even 1% or half a percent of sewage in it, do you want to drink it? What if I told you, you know, this is 99% pure water. There's like a percent of arsenic in it, but, you know, 99% of it is water. Do you want it? No. Because it's not pure water. It's not what it claims to be. Within God, He is 100% pure God. Just, righteous, loving, forgiving, all-knowing, all-powerful. There's nothing else mixed in with Him. Which is why God calls us to also be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, But as the one who called you is holy... You also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So as followers of Jesus, as children of God, we're supposed to be 100% who we say we are. We're supposed to be 100% what, who God has created and saved us to be. We are to be set apart, separate, distinct from the world around us. And finally, God is Trinity. Now, I'm going to focus more on this next week, but in brief, 
The word Trinity refers to God's revelation of Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, unified in that Godhead, yet distinct in person and function. This stands as an essential principle of Christian belief. If you reject the, the Trinity, you're not Christian, not in any kind of historical, biblical sense, because the Bible is clear. There is one God, and He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now, that's a mystery. That's hard to wrap our minds around. It's kind of weird. But listen, just because something's weird doesn't mean it's not true or real, right? I mean, some of us just look in the mirror. We know that. You can be weird, and it doesn't mean it's not true. We don't believe in three gods. We don't believe in three modes of God. We believe that three persons who are equally together, co-equally, co-eternally, God. God is Trinity. We'll look at that more next week. Now, very briefly, based on all of this, what is God's activity? What does God do? Now, I want to briefly go over four roles of God, four ways in which God acts in the world. First, Creator. Genesis 1.1 again tells us the first activity of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He did it by the power of His Word. He did it ex nihilio. Out of nothing, God created all things, time, space, everything. John 1.3 puts it this way. All things, all things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Before God's creative activity, there was literally nothing. There was nothing, no time, no space, no energy, no matter, nothing. The God who is brought all these things into being and He declared it all to be good. And He made it all to His glory and out of His love. God is Creator. Secondly, God is Redeemer. He's a God who rescues His people from evil. Now, of course, you think of the Exodus, God rescuing the Egyptians from slavery. You might think of God rescuing Joseph from the evil intent of his brothers. You might think of God rescuing the Israelites from the Philistines and the Moabites through the judges and through a little shepherd boy with a sling. But the greatest example of God as the Redeemer and Rescuer is what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross. Titus 2.14 says, Who gave Himself, God is the one who gave Himself for us to redeem us, from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 1 again, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Listen, God is still in the business of rescuing and redeeming people from slavery, from slavery to sin. He comes to set us free to be his people and to serve and worship him. God is our creator. God is our redeemer. And third, God is our sustainer. Because God is self-sufficient and He can sustain all of creation. He protects and guards His creation like a good shepherd watching over His sheep. Meeting their needs. Keeping them on the path. Guiding and guarding them through those dark valleys that we sometimes go through. Listen, nothing and no one escapes His attention, care, and love. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 10, 29, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, they're not worth much by our estimation, right? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your Father's consent. And again, what Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 17, He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He sustains, He preserves all things. From the sparrow, to the cosmos, to you and me. God loves He cares, He saves, and He sustains by the power of His Word. And finally, God is ruler. 
as the sovereign creator and king. God rules over all the universe. He's in charge. And He's not some distant king that just rules by decree. No, He's present. He's active. He's intimately involved in creation, especially in the lives of His people. He's not the God of the deists. He's not just a creator who kind of like a clockmaker wound up the clock, set the pendulum to swinging, and then walked away. No, ours is a God who cares and knows and sees and is involved in our world. Again, we see that there in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. David even calls him that the kingdom is his. He calls him the head over all. He says you're the ruler over everything. God is our creator our Redeemer, our Sustainer, and our Ruler. We've talked about what God is like and what God does, but one final question, what difference does it make? Theologian Charles Ryrie said this, All doctrine is practical, and all practice must be based on sound doctrine. Doctrine that is not practical is not healthy doctrine, and practice that is not doctrinal is not rightly based. Or as James says in his New Testament letter, we can't just be hearers of the Word. We must be doers of the Word. In other words, God demands that right thinking and believing translates into right living. A faith that is true is a faith that is active, that is working, that is doing something. Our faith must be demonstrated by our actions. Doctrine teaches us how to think rightly and how we live, is it not always depending on what we believe? How many, how many times have you made a decision based on faulty information and you found out later that wasn't true? It can have pretty big consequences, can it? So what we believe makes a huge difference in how we live. What difference does it make in our lives if we believe that God is personal? Well, it means that God cares and knows us and we can know Him. It means that we're not alone. God's sovereignty assures us that this God that we can know, that cares about us, He's powerful enough to do something about it. He's powerful enough to help us. No matter what life throws our way, we can rest assured God is on His throne and we can approach that throne of grace with boldness and ask Him for help in our time of need. Amen? That's what God's sovereignty means. God's glory reminds us that He is to be revered and honored because He's God, we're not. This puts everything into perspective. It reminds us that we must humbly submit to Him and obey Him as our King. He is worthy of our worship, our thanksgiving, and our praise. God's holiness means that He demands holy living from us and He empowers us to be holy. Reminds us that God is just and righteous and pure and we can trust Him and surrender to Him so that by His Spirit and His Word He can make us holy. Because God is our creator and sustainer, we can rest in the knowledge that He will supply our needs by the riches of His grace in Christ Jesus. He is our shepherd, and we shall not want. And for God to be our redeemer and our ruler means that we can turn to Him for salvation and the forgiveness of our sins, and we can surrender to Him as the Lord of our lives. It means that I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to bear the weight of the world on my shoulders. I'm not the Savior. He is. And it means I can stop driving my life off the cliff of sin and selfishness. It means I can stop trying to attain righteousness on my own and instead I can rest in His grace and in His mercy. Because He's my Redeemer and Ruler. He is my Savior and Lord. What about you this morning? How do you need to respond to this God? 
Maybe you need to come to Him as your Redeemer. Maybe you've never come to Him and said, I believe, Jesus, that You're the Son of God. You died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead, and I know that I'm a sinner. And I know I can never make that right. So I ask You to, Jesus, to forgive me and live within me and help me to be holy as You are. If you've never prayed that today, if you don't know beyond any doubt that you will spend eternity with Him in heaven, I invite you to come in just a moment. Settle that today before you leave. Maybe for you, you need to recommit yourself to Him as ruler. And say, God, I've kind of tried to ease myself back into the driver's seat of my life and I'm making a mess. I I recommit myself to you as my Lord. I want to follow and be obedient to you. Maybe today you need to recommit yourself to God as sustainer. And say, I've been depending too much on my own efforts. I've been forgetting to trust in you and draw power and strength from you. Be my sustainer today. Whatever it is, let's be obedient. Let's respond however God is speaking to you this morning. Let's stand together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for being a God who doesn't change. A God who is faithful and true. We thank You for being the God that not only creates us, but You hold us together. Lord, when we feel like our life is flying apart, we need to turn to You, the One who holds all things together. You are our sustainer. God, forgive us for when we fail to think rightly about You and thus live rightly in relationship with You. And I pray, God, that You would only whet our appetite more and more to learn more and more who You are and surrender to You. God, whatever You're speaking to people's hearts today, I pray they would be obedient in Jesus' name.